Well, good morning, 1030. It is good to see you guys. Oh, man, I am glad to be back. This was my first week back after uh, a couple of weeks of time off. Uh, my wife and I bought a house recently, so we did not travel anywhere, uh, but we just kind of hung at home. Uh, we, we spent some time emotionally preparing for our oldest to do kindergarten jumpstart, uh, which... Yeah, you guys get it. The first gathering laughed at me when I said that. I was like, no, we needed that time to, like, prepare ourselves. Um, it's weird, right? Like, we're in this season where we're still, you know, understandably have, have restrictions on how and where we gather as we're dealing with this, but life keeps going on. And there's a part of it that's like, this doesn't seem fair, right? <laughs> like, we, we did this thing, and, and now life's just going to keep going forward. I think if you're, if you're new here, we're doing this series called Rebuilding, where we're really taking a look at that. And when we sat down as a team to plan out our series and to plan out how we're teaching and why we're teaching and what we're teaching, we didn't think that this series was going to come when everything looked back to normal. Like, I, I wish that we were that optimistic, but we're like, man, things are probably not going to get back to normal by then, or at least whatever new normal looks like. And so for us, we really said, like, we think that this series is going to be important, because there's going to be a time where things don't quite look normal yet, but God is still at work in rebuilding. And God is still at work in rebuilding in this church, in this community, in this city, in this country, and we believe this, that as followers of Jesus, we are called to play a part in that. And so again, if this is your first week here, we're so glad that you're here. And the idea for us of being a rebuilder, when we say a rebuilder, the idea is this, that we would look at the world's brokenness. We would, and you know, I, re I remember it used to be harder to describe the world's brokenness, and I'm just like, open Facebook, open Twitter, like open any of these things, and the world's brokenness is fully on display. Right? That, that when we look at that, when we would see the world's brokenness, we wouldn't go, oh well. That we wouldn't fall into the trap that Jesus followers often fall into, which says, well, my inheritance is in heaven, my future is in heaven, so it doesn't matter what happens on earth. That we would not fall into that trap, but instead, we would look at the brokenness and say, let's move into this brokenness. Because we actually believe this, that in this moment, God wants to rework, rebuild, and restore. That that prayer, the, Lord, the way that Jesus had the disciples pray, right, you know, God, we pray this, we want your kingdom come here as it is in heaven. And that's not just an eternal thing. We think that there are moments where we can get closer to that here. And so today, as we read through scripture, as we talk, we're going to be in the book of Nehemiah, just like we have been for the last five weeks of this series. Uh, if you're unfamiliar with it, Nehemiah is in the Old Testament part of our Bible. It's going to be probably like a third of the way through a paper Bible, if you have that. Um, we'll also have the verses up on the screen. Some of you guys know this, uh, before I came to Anchor, I had done youth ministry for about eight or nine years. I love working with teenagers. And this time of year was always kind of fun to work with teenagers, right? Summer is winding down, so they're at youth group. They're not on their summer vacations with their families, usually. Uh, some of them, your athletes are back in town. They're doing two-a-days at football, and they're just exhausted walking into the room in the evening, which is always fun to, to you know, then you get to push the football player over that you could never do because they're just tired. Um, and they would be so excited for school starting. They would be so excited. Like, I get to see my friends. Like, yeah, classes are going to be hard, but I'm really, really excited. And we get to, like, late October. I remember those same teenagers that were, like, bouncing into the room at youth on Wednesday night in August are, like, shuffling. They are trudging. 
into that room. And I remember vividly we, um, where we were doing youth group back, you know, five, six years ago, we had these old black chairs that were donated from a Starbucks, I think, and these kids would just, like, fall into the chairs and just stay there. And they were so exhausted. I remember asking them, we're like, hey, so, that, so six weeks ago you were really excited for school, and now you, you are a puddle in a chair. Like, what happened? And they would say this, I am so stressed because of how busy I am. So we'd start to have the conversation, okay, what's, what's keeping you so busy? Well, volleyball practice started up again. It's okay. And I have club volleyball three nights a week. Okay. And I work 15 hours at my part-time job. Okay, that's a lot. And I'm taking six AP classes. Why would you ever do that? And, and to an extent, I blamed students for their choices, right? Like, teenagers are fun. Teenagers in the room, I love you. You're learning to become people. It's how I always describe it. Like, you're learning. What does it mean to be an adult? What does it mean to be my own person? Um, it's, it's awesome. It's one of my favorite stages of life. And so some of them, I'm like, well, you made those choices. But I think with everything, we also got to look a little bit deeper. And so parents of teenagers, by and large, especially when I was doing youth ministry, or what we call Gen X, my Gen Xers in the room, I won't make you raise your hand, only make millennials and younger do that. Uh, but Gen Xers in the room, you also know you were kind of grown up and told you were the latchkey generation. Right? And, and, and the, the phrasing behind that is because a lot of times you would come home off the school bus or off of biking from school or walking from school, and you would have your key and you would open your door because your parents weren't there. And this idea that, you know, mom would shuttle you around to 10 soccer practices in a week or that dad would be at all your games just wasn't a reality for a lot of Gen X kids growing up. And I think that there was a felt need that came out of that generation of I want to be more involved with my kids' life than my parents were. And I don't want my kids to, to, to feel the same sense of almost abandonment that I think a lot of Gen Xers felt growing up. And that's such a good desire. That's such a good desire. But I think sometimes good desires unchecked can swing all the way to the wrong direction. And I think sometimes we now have parents who are like, I can't say no to my kids, and I want them to do everything. And I get that. Uh, I am wrapped around the finger of my three-year-old daughter. Her name is Aria. She pretends she's a different Disney princess every hour. Um, and uh, she's the cutest thing. And if Aria asks me for something, I'm like, of course I'm going to give it to you. You can have the entire world. <laughs> So, like, I get it, but I think something that, that these teenagers that I was working with and that their parents that I was working with didn't quite fully grasp was this truth, which is this. Whatever I say yes to, it means I'm saying no to something else. Whatever I say yes to, it means I'm saying no to something else. I don't like that. Like, I thought I was different. I thought I was special. I'm like, no, 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 I can do everything. And then I watch these teenagers try to do everything and just burn out on both ends. Uh, where are my multitaskers in the room? You think you're really good at multitasking? My hand is fully up. Okay, my hand is fully up. Okay, hands down because it's going to get embarrassing for us. Multitasking kills your brain. Like I remember the first time I saw a study that said that multitasking like makes you less effective at the tasks and also might have like harmful effects on your brain power for years to come. And I was like, no, I'm exceptional. I can multitask and do just fine. I can't. Like as, I, as I've gotten older, I've realized that. I was like, oh, I wasn't doing both things really well. I was doing both things kind of okay. You see, whenever we say yes to something, we are actively saying no to everything else. 
Right? Think about it. When you say yes to coming here at 10.30, you are more often than not saying no to anything else. We are going into fantasy football season. I recognize some of you will be checking your lineups. That's fine. And checking the scores. Like, I get that. But by and large, when you show up at 10.30, you're saying no to doing anything else at 10.30. It's the same thing. When you say yes as a teenager or as a parent to soccer practice, you can't also be at other soccer practice at that same time, right? It doesn't work. We can't put ourselves in multiple places. But I think this, that this truth of whatever I say yes to means I'm saying no to something else actually goes deeper than time management. I think this, that much of the confusion in our personal life, in our community life, and in large-level leadership actually comes from not understanding that valuable truth. I think, it works, I think it works this way in marriages. I think a lot of times the marriages that you see fall apart don't fall apart because someone started saying no to their spouse. It's because they started saying yes to something or someone else and then realized that meant they were saying no to their spouse. When you look at people who get in trouble with their finances, it's not that they said yes to, to debt, it's that they said yes to that $5 Starbucks time and time again. It's that they said yes to this decision. They said yes to this move that they weren't ready for, yes to this car that they weren't ready for, and in doing so, they said no to the rest of their budget. When we look at our spiritual life, I don't know about you, but the times that I've been, I felt the furthest from God have not been times where I've been angry at God or, or yelled at God, and there's been plenty of those times in my life there are actually the times where I keep saying yes to everything else but spending time with God. Because when I'm mad at God, right, like we're still spending time together. We're talking, and he can handle my anger. He can handle my relationship with him. The times I feel furthest is when I keep saying yes to so many other things and realize I have yet to say yes to time with God. So when we look at what sets rebuilders apart from everyone else, I think it's that they've mastered this truth. Another way that we can say this is this, is that they know the one thing. They know the one thing that they care about more than anything else. In Nehemiah chapter 1, if you weren't here, we know this. Nehemiah looks out and he sees these broken walls, and it breaks his heart. Because he knows that the broken walls around the city exposes him, his family, his loved ones, his community, his city to all sorts of things. Thieves can come in and go rather quickly. Marauders can come in and go rather quickly. They're vulnerable to other nations. They're vulnerable to being oppressed. They're vulnerable to all these things. And Nehemiah has what we've articulated as a holy heartbreak. Something that breaks his heart that also broke the heart of God's. And he knows that this is his one thing. It's something of such significance for Nehemiah that it was worth enduring opposition, worth making a big ask of a powerful person, which was terrifying, worth using all of the influence he had to gather people together, worth his energy, his sweat, his pain, his blood, his tears. And he knew it was his one thing because not committing to that was something he couldn't stomach. It actually hurt his heart so much that if he, he entertained the idea of not doing it, it broke his heart. It broke his heart. It ate at his stomach, I believe. I think there's probably a one thing for you as well, a cause, um, an organization, a, a project, something out there for you as well. We talked about that on Wednesday night at that, at that growth event Susan was talking about with Karin. If you, if you weren't there, even if you were there, I'd encourage you, come to the Zoom one tonight. We're going to dive in more to that question about how has God gifted you and what breaks your heart and what is he asking you to rebuild in this season? But as we look at Nehemiah, we wonder, how do we find that one thing? I think a question that's important to ask as we're looking for that one thing is this, is where is there potential for a great win 
or a great loss? That's a really important question. History is filled with the deathbed confessions of people who said, I chased the wrong thing. I said this a few months ago, but I think a lot of you guys weren't here at that time. There was a moment I had in, gosh, I think it was either, I think it was 2018, that changed the way I view the legacy I want to leave my kids. I went to a funeral. I went to the funeral of a man named Charlie, and Charlie was a, was a grandfather to one of my students who was really a father figure to one of my youth students because he didn't have a good biological father figure. Charlie was a very successful businessman. Lived in an affluent community, was really well off, gave to charities, you know, had a very successful business, kept people employed through the recession, all this stuff. And uh, they did something that I wouldn't have done. At the funeral, they had an open mic moment. I am nervous about <laughs> open mic moments. I, it just, like, it ratchets my anxiety up. You'll notice we don't do that here. Um, but it went so well. For 90 minutes, there was story after story after story about the type of man that Charlie was. And he had all these things that were successful in the world's eyes, and no one shared a single story about that. Every single story. And this wasn't planned. This was like anxiety-inducing in open mic. Anyone can walk up and grab the mic. Every single story was about how when people knew Charlie, they saw Jesus. Every single story was about how he reflected the person Jesus that he had dedicated his life to following. In that moment, I go, that's what I want my funeral to be like. Like, and I, I remember looking at my two young kids that were there, and I was like, that's what I want it to be. Like, that's what I want them to see in their dad. I think this, so often we pursue wrong things, the pursuit of fame, of acclamation, of wealth, love, and power, and I think they're so appealing for us to pursue because they, they appeal to our wounds and our insecurities. Maybe you grew up in a household that didn't have much money growing up, and you were scraping every single cent together to get by, and you said, that's not going to be my family. I love that. My, that was my dad. I love that. Here's what I also know. That can't be your one thing. Because history is filled with people who wealth was their one thing, and they get to the end of the road, and they realize that didn't actually ever fulfill them. They're unable to answer the question, how much is actually enough? You know, bettering your family, that's great. Bettering your family's financial future, that's awesome. Leaving a legacy of financial health, that's incredible. But you can't have that be your one goal to accumulate wealth. You can't sit there and say, my parents walked out on me, and so I'm going to make sure that no one ever walks out on me again. I'm never disappointed, and I'm never heartbroken again. I want that. Like, when I, watch, when I work with students or adults who've had their parents walk out on them, like, I just want to hug them and shelter them. Be like, I don't want any more bad things to happen to you. But the world doesn't work that way. I think this, sometimes we chase after things because we're not sure if there's enough of it to go around, whether it's love, whether it's money, whether it's acceptance. And in the process, you actually get addicted to that kind of dopamine hit of chasing after that thing. David Brooks is an author, and, and in one of his books, he talks about this idea of the second mountain. He says this, that lots of people have this life of climbing the first mountain called ego. And that sounds, like, that sounds harsh, but it's also true. Like, it is really hard for us to get over ourselves. Like, it is really hard. I used to think I was humble, and then I lived with someone. I was like, no, I'm pretty picky. Like, I, I, I need to get over myself. And climbing that first mountain is trying to demonstrate that we are capable, that we can do it, that we can move, that we can find acceptance or belonging or place in the world. 
And he says this in his book. He says that people who get to the top of that mountain realize that it isn't what they thought. And when they hit that realization, he says this, they, they set out to climb the second mountain, which is service and sacrifice. So we see Nehemiah do. And so when Nehemiah, we see him, he's climbing this mountain of service and sacrifice, and we see as he's rebuilding, he's towards the finish line, he's getting towards the end, and he does what we're calling this, he turns down distraction. So let me tell you something, when you're involved in a rebuilding work, when you're involved in something of great significance, there will always be a distraction. There will always be things that are calling out for you to say yes to it, and you need to say no, because if you said yes to that thing, you'd be saying no to the great work that God has for you. So we're going to pick it up in Nehemiah 6, chapter 1. Again, it'll be on the screen. It says this, When word came to Sambalat, Tobiah, Geshem the Arab, and the rest of our enemies, that I had rebuilt the wall and not a gap was left in it, though up to that time I had not set the doors and the gates. As someone who's like mid-construction project on our kids' hallway and someone who's mid-house like house project, I love this disclaimer. I love that, where he's like, we got the walls up, don't ask about the doors. But I love it. He's like, no, there is work done. It is largely there. We've gotten there with the kids' breezeway. Um, it's great. The doors just aren't in the right place. So I appreciate that. Uh, Sambala and Geshem sent me this message. Come, let us meet together in one of the villages on the plain of Ono. But they were scheming to harm me, so I sent messengers to them with this reply. I am carrying on a great work and cannot go down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and go down to you? That's conviction. Like, that's conviction. That's a, at best this is networking, at worst this is a shady plot, and like, I'm convicted to what God has called me to do. Four times they send him the same message, it says, and each time Nehemiah says, I gave them the same answer. Nehemiah here has to discern, is this a distraction or is this an opportunity? I think you could have seen this as a, as a parlay, right? A, a, an opportunity that he had built the wall. The doors weren't in, as he's very careful to let us know, but he had built a lot of the wall, and maybe the enemies are like, okay, let's have a conversation. Let's have a relationship. Finally, they're coming around. But he has to use his discernment. So how do we discern? Because again, like I said, there will be distractions that come in your pursuit of the one thing. So what does he do? He examines the source. He knows Sanballat. He asks the question, does this person, this thing, this idea, this distraction, what is its track record? If you go back to verse 1, you notice this. It says this, Sambalat, Tobiah, Geshem, and the rest of our enemies. We know that Sambalat is an enemy. And Nehemiah here is being wise. We believe this, that the greatest indicator of future behavior is past behavior. There's a tension we have to walk as Jesus followers. We need to be open to the idea that God can radically change the life of anyone. But sometimes for the safety of our family, whether it's our emotional boundaries or our physical boundaries and the safety of our community, we need to trust that people are who they tell us they are. Like sometimes we just need to take people when they show us who they are. We need to believe them. Nehemiah has this moment here where he's not, I love his response. He's not condemning them. He's not saying they're going to hell. He's not pushing them out. He's not saying they're beyond hope or beyond redemption. But he is like, I think you're trying to trick me, and I'm not going to let you distract me from what God's asking me to do. Like, can we be people who are wise like that? Who are wise and grace-filled? Like, he considers it, but he doesn't stop the work. And he does that because he's evaluating the outcome, right? So we examine the source and we evaluate the outcome. He's asking this question, if I did this, what would happen next? If I did this, what would happen next? Man, how different would our lives look if we asked ourselves that question more? 
Let's look at our finances, right? I think, I think so often I make budget decisions when that $5 like afternoon Starbucks to like get me back through the day sounds really, really good, and I don't think about what that does to the rest of my budget that month. I don't ask the question, if I do this, what will happen next? I have watched as friends of mine have had their marriages fall apart because they, they forget to ask the question, if I go here with this person, if I text this person who's not my spouse, if I think these things about this person, they don't ask the question, what will happen next? I think so often we, we forget to, to, to look at these distractions as what they are, which is distractions. We forget to examine the source and evaluate the outcome. The trick to not getting sucked into that social media like time just void is through falling in love with time with those that you love and understanding that Sabbath and margin are sacred. The idea if you want to, if you know I spend too much on the afternoon coffee or I spend too much on eating lunch out, the, the, the trick is not to say I need to stop doing that. It's to focus on that future thing that you want, that vacation, that home that you're saving up for, that dream that you have for your family's finances. The trick to avoiding the painful and traumatic distraction of an affair is working on your marriage, not stopping other behavior. I just think this, can we not sacrifice future goals for present wants? And the trick to doing that, right, is to focus on positive things, not try, try and negatively cut out the things that we know we shouldn't be distracted by. Brian talked about this earlier in the series, and, and we're going back to it. He talks about this, the expulsive power of a greater affection. You see, when you love and appreciate one thing, it will actually push out anything else that competes with it. When you really love and appreciate one thing and focus so much on it, something happens in our brain, something happens in our hearts, and it pushes out everything else that will compete to it. And it applies to all the things we mentioned before, right? To marriage, to finances, to time management. But really it's this, and, and, and this is where we see in the rest of Scripture, and this is why it's so important that we look at Scripture together as a whole, is this, is that we can have our one thing, but it has to be rooted in that one person of Jesus. Paul says this. He says that Jesus is going to reorganize our lives. He says this, brothers and sisters, in Philippians 3, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead. Uh, Eugene Peterson did a translation of Scripture that's kind of a paraphrase to put things in really relatable language, and he says that same text this way that I love, so we're going to read it together. In the message, Eugene Peterson writes this, I'm not saying that I have this all together, thankfully, Right? That's a, that's a core aspect of us here at Anchor. We're imperfect people. I'm not saying I have this all together that I have it made, but I am well on my way reaching out for Christ who has so wondrously reached out for me. Friends, don't get me wrong. By no means do I count myself an expert in all of this, but I've got my eye on the goal where God is beckoning us onward to Jesus. I've got my eye on the goal, Jesus. I'm off and running, and I'm not turning back. This is the way to be a rebuilder in a, in a world of brokenness. To be a rebuilder in a world of brokenness, you have to be captivated by the master builder's plan. Like, we can't, it's not going to work if, we rebu- if I rebuild the world in John's image. It's going to work if I rebuild the world the way John would want. It's only going to work if I say, God, what do you have for me? There's no hope for the world except for from the one who made the world. And Nehemiah gets this, right? As he's pushing aside these distractions, as he's pushing aside the enemies and saying, I have to keep carrying on the work. It's interesting. We see in verse 9 this. They were all trying to frighten us, thinking their hands will get too weak for the work and it will not be completed. In verse 9, Nehemiah says this, But I prayed, now strengthen my hands. 
in this moment where he is facing discouragement, in this moment where he's facing distraction, he doesn't like circle up with his plan that he wrote down. He doesn't write a pro and con list of, of meeting with Sambala and not. He doesn't sit there with his advisors and say, okay, we're going to brainstorm and come out of this you know, meeting with the right plan of action. He prays. He leans into God and he says this, now strengthen my hands. Can we be a church that does that? Can we be a church that when we feel we know our one thing, we know God is calling us so that we have deep conviction of it and distraction comes up, can we not run? When distraction comes up, can we not follow that distraction? But when distraction comes up, can we also not lean on our own strength but lean on God's strength? Will we be a church that when that distraction comes up, we say, God, strengthen my hands with a power that only you can bring to me? And we get to see the results in verse 14. He says this, Remember Tobiah and Sambalat, my God, because of what they have done. Remember no, no idea and the, how she and the rest of the prophets have been trying to intimidate me. So the wall was completed on the 25th of Elul in 52 days. When all of our enemies heard about this, all the surrounding nations were afraid and lost their self-confidence because they realized that this work had been done with the help of our God. See, when God shows up in that something, other people listen. Even people who don't follow God. I love that. I love that in chapter 6 we get to see the fruit of what Nehemiah has done. And guys, let me tell you, as a rebuilder, especially in, in this day and age, it's so important. It is so important to take a moment to see the fruit of what God has been doing and using you to do. Psychologists uh, have told us this, that our bodies remember trauma much more than joy. Uh, there's a stat that I'm going to probably get wrong, but it's close enough, so we're going to use it, which is I think it takes 10 compliments to, to counteract one negative feedback that we've received. Teenagers and young adults and people who have those wounds from those time periods, you know this. Your parents could say that we love you and we're proud of you, but that one time you brought the report card home that had all A's and one B, and they asked what happened in biology. That sticks with you, right? That time that you had a performance review with your boss and, and, he, and, they, and they said to you, hey, everything looks really great, but man, what's going on in this area? And you forget about the everything great and just fixate on that area for a long time. We live in a broken world. We live in a broken world that's full of imperfect people like me, like you. There are going to be hard things. There's going to be traumatic things. There's going to be things that cut to our soul and wound us deep. And the only way that you're going to be able to continue in a rebuilding effort is this, if you take time to see the fruit of what God has asked you to do. As a staff, we've tried to build in this discipline of celebration. We have a staff meeting together every Tuesday morning with everyone from here and from Lincoln, and, and we send about five to ten minutes, and sometimes it goes long, which I love, just saying, what are we celebrating this week? What have we seen God do? And can I tell you, like, my soul needs that. Because life is hard. <laughs> I'm a data person, and you can't data people, and that's all church is. <laughs> like, helping people grow in their faith with Jesus, growing in my faith with Jesus, it's not linear. It's not this thing that we can chart and we can quantify really, really easily. And so we need these stories. We need these moments where you say, this has been a hard week, but I got to see God show up in a way I didn't even know about because my team member said so. I just think this, how different would your families look if like you and your spouse or you on your own, however you, you head up your family, took time to celebrate what you saw in the last week? How different would that look? We're going into anchor groups in a little bit, and, and Susan doesn't know I'm saying this, but I just like, what would our anchor groups look like if we spent the first 10 minutes celebrating what God had done in the week before? And please hear me on this. Like, church needs to be a place where we can talk about anything. 
So those anger groups, I also want you to talk about the hard things, about the broken things in your life and other people's life. Like, church should have the honesty of an AA meeting. It's the only way that this actually works in a real way. But can we also take those times to celebrate? Can we also build in that discipline of celebrating, of seeing the fruit? We're going to have the band come up as we close. I think this, that if you commit to your one thing, and you, and you make sure that that's set in your pursuit of the one person of Jesus, you are going to see fruit. Sometimes that work might feel like it's only half built and like a fox would knock it down like we saw earlier in Nehemiah. Sometimes there's progress, but we're tired. Sometimes it's almost there, right? But the doors are in the wrong place. We still need to have those moments where we say, there will be fruit, I know there will be, and I can actually see it as we go on this work. Paul says this, he says that your one thing has no place unless Jesus is that one person that it's rooted in. And I think a lot of times in church we're, we're asking ourselves the question, I've had students ask me this, I've had adults ask me this, I've asked myself this, how do I have that pursuit of Jesus as my one thing? I actually believe that it starts here, it starts with realizing that for Jesus you are his one thing. Like, that, that sounds illogical in our human brains, but I promise you it's true that for Jesus, for God himself, you are his one thing. That he looks at you and he knows everything about you, things you don't even know about yourself, and he looks at you and says, you are my one thing. He says, you are wonderfully and fearfully made, and I know the mistakes that you've made, I know the mistakes that you're going to make in the future, and you are still my one thing, and I love you so dearly. And when you know that, when you really know that, it changes how you look at things. When you really know that, when we really internalize in our hearts and our souls that we are Jesus is one thing, it's easy for him to be that one person that everything is, is rooted in, that everything is in pursuit of. One of the things that, that Christians throughout time since the night Jesus was betrayed have done is we've gathered together and taken what we call communion. For those of you that don't know the story, it, it starts with this. Jesus had gathered his closest followers together on the last night he was going to spend with them. They were eating at a table, which was an intimate act. It was one of the most intimate relational acts you could make in that culture in that time. And he knows that the person who's going to betray him is at that table. And even knowing that, he takes bread and he breaks it and he says, this is my body, which is broken for you. Will you eat this in remembrance of me? He says he also takes a cup. He says, this is my blood, which is shed for you. Will you drink this in remembrance of me? And that, that, three days later, that happened, right? Like, we see all that happen. We see him, everything come together. We see him, him die, even though he didn't deserve it. We see him rise again three days later. So that he can free us from our brokenness, from our imperfections, so we can have that relationship with him. Under your chairs is some communion elements, if you want to grab them. And here's what I'm going to ask you to do. I'm going to ask you to not take it right now. I'm going to ask you to grab it from under your chairs, hold on to it, but don't take it yet. The band's going to play a song, and as the band plays a song, I want you to really ask yourself a question. Throughout this series, we've talked about and we've asked, you know, what breaks your heart that also breaks God's heart? Are you a rebuilder? Do you have the heart of a rebuilder? And those are really good questions that I want you to think about. But today, there is one question I'm asking you to ask yourself. Do you really believe that you are Jesus' one thing? Do you truly believe that you are Jesus' one thing. Because honestly, if we don't answer, if the answer to that isn't a yes, then nothing else I've said today matters. 
I think some of you are here and you're, you're new to this person of Jesus and I need you to know that that means you as well. Like, God loves you. And yeah, you're thinking, but what about this? What about this? Yes, Jesus knows about all that. He still loves you and still says that you're his one thing. So maybe it's a couple of seconds. Maybe it's a couple of minutes. But I think this, if you said yes to Jesus and believe that he is your one thing and, and you are his, we would love for you to take communion with us. Again, you can take your time on, on however that is. We're going to have the band play a song. And again, you can stand, you can sing, you can sit, you can reflect. But I want you to ask that question. Do I, in my heart, really believe that Jesus has chosen me and I am his one thing and he loves me more than anything else? Will you guys pray with me? God, we thank you for that truth. We thank you for the fact that, that even in the midst of our brokenness, even in the midst of mistakes that we can list, the more that you know that we can't even remember, God, that you say you've chosen us. God, I thank you for the fact that you allow us to be a part of your rebuilding work, your kingdom work. God, I pray that this church would have a heart of rebuilders, God, but that, whatever one thing that is for each of us, God, that it would be rooted in you as that one person. So God, we thank you again for Jesus for his death for us, for his resurrection that gave us new life, and for the fact that he says that he loves us and there's nothing we can do to change that. God, if there's anyone here who's doubting that truth, God, would you lean in on them? Would you comfort them? Would you remind them that they are your child? God, may we be a church that reflects that and lives that out. In your name, amen.